Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. On Monday, Governor Roy Cooper delivered his last State of the State address. The speech is given every two years, and since Cooper is constitutionally barred from running for re-election, the next one will be delivered by a new governor. Cooper used this final opportunity to recap his accomplishments while in office and to set out goals for his final years in the governor's mansion, but some of those goals may be difficult to accomplish given Republican control of the legislature. Just as is the case with the annual State of the Union message, the state GOP had a response to our Democratic governor. It was delivered by Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who is expected to be in the race for governor in 2024. So this hour, we talk about the the state of our state as presented by both sides and what the next few years of politics are likely to be like in North Carolina. To help us with that, Dr. Michael Bitzer is our returning champion. He is back. Uh, he is professor of politics and history at Catawba College, though he is wearing a Wake Forest uh, sweatshirt for those of you not watching on Facebook Live this morning. Good morning, Michael. Good to be with you, as always, and go Deeks. I won't even ask why. I think I know. (laughs) And Colin Campbell is with us. He is Capitol Bureau Chief at WUNC Radio in Raleigh. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Great to be here, Mike. So, Colin, I'm starting with you. Uh, The governor's speech, you watched the whole thing. You told WFAE's Marshall Terry the other day on Morning Edition that you felt this was a practical speech by Cooper. Why practical? Why that word? You know, I think he he was opting for the practical sort of pragmatic approach to this speech. A governor can use this kind of platform to lay out a really ambitious major policy proposal agenda. Cooper didn't opt to do that in part because he recognizes that he's probably not going to be able to enact any such agenda. He's got a Republican legislature with a near veto-proof majority. Um, he's not going to have a whole lot of bargaining power when it comes to what the legislature actually does. So this was sort of a, a speech where he really highlighted areas where there's potential for bipartisan agreement, and there has been bipartisan agreement in the last few years. All this uh, federal infrastructure money that's been coming to North Carolina through some of the COVID relief bills uh, that have been used to fund things like early childhood education, mental health, uh, clean water infrastructure. Those are areas where everyone seems to uh, agree, both Republicans and Democrats. So Cooper really focused on that and talked about sort of continuing those investments into the current budget cycle the next couple of years. Uh, And then he spent the last few minutes of the speech uh, talking about what he termed culture wars issues that he doesn't want to see North Carolina uh, jump into again. So uh, sort of directly referencing some of the bills that are already being filed in the legislature uh, and pointing out that uh, he thinks they're a bad idea and trying to convince lawmakers not to go that route, even though they're kind of already going there. All of which we're going to get into through the course of this hour. He touted uh, his legislative and policy accomplishments over the last several years. He took uh, uh, some of the credit for the state's recent successes in, like, moving toward a clean energy economy. And he cited recent electric vehicle industry announcements. I am not familiar with those. What were, what were they? Yeah, so a lot of these are sort of the, the job development front. I mean, right, the governor is in charge of the Department of Commerce. They're the ones that do the big jobs incentives package. Uh, so you've seen a lot of activity in the manufacturing sector in North Carolina, multiple uh, big plants for uh, car batteries and semiconductor chips and uh, electric vehicles that are come online sort of uh, 
uh, in the area between uh, Ashboro and Raleigh uh, along uh, Highway 421. Thousands of jobs coming to the state as a result of that. So the governor is sort of touting that as as his big accomplishments. Uh, of course, the incentive structure is out there. It's uh, it's was set by the legislature, but it's ultimately Cooper's administration that actually uh, puts that into place and works with these companies that are interested in bringing jobs to North Carolina. He also thanked GOP legislators for uh, passing the 2021 Carbon Emissions Reduction Law uh, and the decision to expand Medicaid, something that he has advocated, as most Democrats have, for a very long time. The Republicans were reluctant to get on board with that, have been for years. So I'm just curious, from your point of view, as somebody who's in Raleigh all the time, how instrumental was Governor Cooper in moving the needle on expansion of Medicare. Did he have anything to do with it, or was that simply a change of heart on the part of Phil Berger and Tim Moore and others? I think there was definitely a change of heart on the part of Phil Berger and Tim Moore, and a lot of that was driven by some uh, external factors. You know, They've cited as part of their uh, reason for changing their minds the fact that the Affordable Care Act is not going away. All the attempts to repeal it in Congress have gone nowhere, so it's sort of understood on both sides of the aisle that this policy is here to stay, and, and so that took care of some of the worries that Republicans had about Medicaid expansion. They were concerned we'd add these uh, additional 500,000 or so people to the Medicaid population, and then the federal funding that covers most of the cost of that would go away and the state would be stuck holding the bag. Uh, they're no longer concerned about that, and so that had a big part of why they've relented. But I will give the governor credit. I mean, he has made this a top of mind issue, uh, a key to the state's debates for pretty much the entire time he's been in office since he was first elected in 2016. Um, and that has resulted in this not ever going away as a hot topic down at the legislature. We've talked about it every session, every year for yeah. really nearly a decade now. And I think that sort of uh, put the pressure on for some sort of change of heart and, and certainly to keep the discussion rolling, even when it seemed, you know, three or four years ago that perhaps it was never going to happen with a Republican majority. Uh, Michael, even before we entered this hyper-partisan period of, of our politics, there's alliteration for you. Even before we entered this period, uh, Republicans and Democrats had uh, genuine differences on how they viewed the role of government in our lives. And, and Republicans generally like as little government as possible, and Democrats generally like to regulate things and make sure they're going to the people that are that, that are allegedly going to get the benefit of these things. One thing that they found out is that people like health care. Uh, they want it. Now that they've got it, they want to keep it. Was that perhaps something that Republicans feared all along when they fought both the Affordable Care Act and in this state the expansion of Medicare? Once we do it, we're in for the whole run. Yeah, I, I think if you go back and kind of recall what Phil Berger's objections were, one of them was that the state's Medicaid system they viewed as very broken, and they wanted that to that kind of infrastructure bureaucratic agency to get fixed. And also the fact, as Colin rightly noted, the question of the 90-10 rule that you know the federal government was paying 90 percent the state would chip in 10 percent early on Berger and others were concerned well maybe it would go 80 20 and then 70 30 and since that funding consistency has been there i think that the change of heart and the fact that 600 you know by most estimates 600,000 north carolinians would benefit from this, particularly in rural North Carolina, that would also tend to help 
uh, hospitals. That is a constituency that is core to the Republican base. And I think that even with the economic conservatism of we want government out of the economy, this kind of public policy issue does see as a benefit towards a core Republican constituency and is, you know, something that is accepted now as public policy across the country. During Governor Cooper's time in office, he's always had a Republican majority in the legislature to have to contend with uh, this time around this year, though he has a legislature that is more powerful because they are just one vote shy in the House of uh, a supermajority, which means they can override the vote if they get a Democrat, to, or, or a veto, rather, if they get a Democrat to cross the aisle. Uh, and we live in this highly polarized time when a win by the other side is considered to be a defeat by the other, or if, if by God we defeat you, then we've won. That's one way to look at it, I suppose, which leads to gridlock. It leads to slowing things down. It leads to distrust of government by voters because they can't do anything. Nothing ever gets done. When you have a state in which the governor is weak, and we have that by design in this state, is the situation exacerbated? Yes. I mean, the, the, the fundamentals is that in North Carolina politics, going back to colonial days, this was a legislative supremacy state, that the legislature set the tone in the direction for state government, and that governors, you know, until the 1980s didn't have the chance to run for re-election, didn't have the veto until the mid-90s. So this is an inherently dispersed executive branch. We have a number of statewide elected officials that are executives in their own right beyond the governor. So all of this power is kind of spread out amongst the executive branch. And with the legislature having the constitutional supremacy, uh, that is the system that we have. Now, the governor can do things like executive orders and assert his you know, influence on things like budgets and making recommendations. But it's ultimately, if anything wants to get passed into law, it is the legislature that dominates. And in recent years, the legislature has been actively working, I believe this is accurate to say, to weaken the governor, governor's office even more. Coincidentally, that office is occupied by a Democrat, and I guess that's partly why they're doing it. But at some point, and it could be very soon, a Republican might hold the governor's office. Will that trend continue? Will they still want to weaken the legislature, because we can the governor's office, because the legislature is also working on a case at the Supreme Court that could make them the supreme ruler of all elections here and around the country. Yeah, I think I think certainly the Moore v. Harper case that that we'll probably talk about a little bit later on is going to be fundamental. I think you heard in the governor's uh, state of the state address the issue particularly about higher education and the governance of the UNC system. Uh, you know, they took the legislature took away the appointment power of him and gave it back to the legislature. He made a committee and recommendations. He hoped that the hopes that the legislature will take it seriously. But some legislative aides, you know, tweeted out it's DOA dead on arrival in terms of a policy perspective. Maybe Collins got some some ideas on on that topic particularly. 
Yeah, I mean, China. they may throw the governor a bone a little bit on uh, some of the things that he wants they have in the past. But in general, and, and even when there's a Republican governor, I mean, when uh, Pat McCrory was the governor, his budget proposal didn't really go that far in the legislature. So even when it's the, somebody from the same party, they're not necessarily motivated to uh, take a lot of that budget proposal into account as they develop their own budget. It really comes down to what are the House priorities and what are the Senate priorities. And maybe they throw in a few pet projects from the governor, whoever that governor may be. You would think, given the hyperpartisan nature of our politics, Colin, that the state of the state speech, which looks very much on television like the State of the Union with the governor coming down the aisle and everybody applauding and shaking hands, and then, uh, surprise, surprise, the lieutenant governor of the opposing party, who is somewhat of a firebrand, introduces the governor. It all looks exactly like the state of the state. Uh, were both Republicans and Democrats applauding the governor as he entered the chamber? There was definitely a pause. It was sort of uh, more muted on the Republican side. And you can always <laughs> see when when certain issues come up, there was a big applause line related to the Medicaid expansion. And it was fun to watch which of the Republicans were applauding that. Uh, certainly all the Democrats were, but which ones uh, perhaps stayed a little bit more silent when, uh, when Medicaid expansion was mentioned yeah. in the speech. He also talked, as you mentioned uh, earlier, he talked about the infrastructure uh, improvements, uh, road building, things like that. He talked about a, a town in eastern North Carolina that had dirty water is going to get funds now from the federal infrastructure bill to clean that water system up, to have a whole new water system put in place. Those are all coming from that federal infrastructure bill, which was pushed by President Biden and passed by a then democratically controlled Congress. Do you see this as something that Democrats in North Carolina will be running on in 2024? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the Democrats in North Carolina recognize in particular that they've got a problem in rural North Carolina. They've really underperformed in those areas the last few election cycles. And if they can point to, hey, look, Sampson County, the town of Ivanhoe that you mentioned, uh, is getting a whole brand new water system. These other places that didn't have access to high-speed internet, now they have broadband. And you can thank the Democrats in Congress uh, and the governor of North Carolina for that. That's definitely going to be a big part of their message going into the next uh, election season. And I have about 10 seconds, Michael. Are these the kind of improvements that will actually be kicking in in most communities around the country just prior to the election? Just prior and probably in the process thereof. Okay, we have to take a break. We're here with Dr. Michael Bitzer from Catawba College and Colin Campbell from WUNC. He's their Capitol Bureau Chief on Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. We're talking about the state of the state as described by uh, the governor on Monday and later the Republican lieutenant governor's response with Colin Campbell. He's the Capitol Bureau Chief of WUNC in Raleigh. Dr. Michael Bitzer is also with us. He's professor of uh, history and, uh, public and politics at Catawba College. The governor talked about uh, the importance of improving access to child care as part of getting people back to work and better funding mental health care as well. Uh, I think you say, Colin, that those are two things that appear to have bipartisan support. Why do you say that? You know, I think everyone recognizes that the labor shortage is a problem, and a large part of that is folks being able to find child care um, 
I have a four-year-old who, who attends daycare. I dropped her off this morning. Whenever I'm in there, I overhear the directors on the phone telling some poor parents, sorry, we don't have space for you. Our waiting list is super long. And, and those are folks that uh, may be more likely to stay home and, and not you know, rejoin the workforce. And that's sort of compounding our, our labor issues. So I think there's been a recognition since the pandemic that uh, the access to childcare, decent quality, affordable childcare is a key element in the economy overall. And so there's been funding put through to help with that. Uh, there's a need for, I think, more funding. And that's something the governor was alluding to in his speech, uh, that that's sort of an area of focus going forward to try to address that issue. Uh, so that when a parent gets a cool job offer and they wanna make sure their kid has childcare for eight hours a day, uh, they're not calling around and getting answers that there's a two month waiting list to get a slot. Uh, they can get their kid in the next day and, and at a fairly affordable price. I mean, it's not, uh, unless you've got subsidies, it's not cheap. I think I pay like $300 a month for, $300 a week for mine. Uh, so certainly this is a, a top of mind for, for a lot of folks right now. Well, have they been talking in the legislature about policies to make more, to make childcare more readily available? Yeah, so there's sort of two fronts. There's the funding front of how, how do you fund some grants for uh, child care facilities to be able to improve the salaries of the people they employ. Uh, one of the challenges is child care wages are relatively low, uh, and so that makes it hard to recruit and retain high quality teachers in those classrooms. Uh, the other issue is on the regulatory front of just how many hoops you have to jump through uh, to open one of these facilities and keep them with their, uh, you know, five-star ratings as they typically uh, classify them. Uh, and that's an area where the legislature is looking to, you know, where can we reduce regulations without harming the safety or quality of care that's out there, uh, but making it a little bit less onerous and a little bit less expensive for these uh, centers to keep up with all the latest regulations. Uh, clearly, we have a mental health care problem in the country, uh, partly because of the pandemic, but also you can you can look at the number of homeless people, many of whom are homeless because they're having mental issues, and the rise of gun violence, which I think, I think part of that could be attributed to mental health issues. Uh, is that, are those two things, some of the things that are moving, uh, that are making this more bipartisan in terms of trying to find a way to improve healthcare in that area? Yeah, I think mental health is definitely an area where um, both parties recognize that we have a big problem, both in terms of uh, young people, teenagers, uh, sort of student issues. I mean, you've had a, a lot of instances of suicide on, on college campuses and even in our public you know, middle and high schools recently. Uh, so recognition that you need to fund school guidance counselors, various forms of, uh, of other resources so that uh, people can get the mental health infrastructure they need. And certainly that was a priority for the governor. You know, as we mentioned, it's very similar to State of the Union and much like State of the Union, uh, the governor has his invited guests who get shout outs uh, during the speech when he's talking about a topic uh, close to that. So one of his guests was a uh, school guidance counselor from Alamance County uh, who's been involved in some of these uh, mental health needs that are out there. I think that's sort of recognizing that we don't have anything close to bipartisanship around gun policy mm. in the state, uh, that mental health is sort of the, the area that everyone can agree that, yes, we definitely do need to do something about this in particular. Well, in addition to those two bipartisan issues, the mental health care and, and child care, he did bring up uh, green energy, encouraging uh, uh, more investment in green energy, more investment in the public schools, stronger gun control, and ooh, protecting reproductive rights. Uh, those don't strike me as goals of the Republicans in the legislature. Would that be correct? Absolutely. And, and there's certainly measures in place. I mean, he, he didn't specifically address individual bills that are out there, but most of the topics he addressed are either 
already pieces of legislation that have been introduced, or in the case of reproductive rights, uh, are things that are about to bubble up from the surface. I'm, I'm told we could be a, a couple weeks out from some kind of agreement among House and Senate Republicans as to what type of abortion restrictions they can all agree to. Probably something uh, they seem to be leaning towards not a heartbeat bill, not a continuation of the status quo, but a shift from the current 20-week uh, ban that's in state law to something around uh, 10-12-ish weeks, uh, depending on what all the Republicans agree to. And, and that's an area where, again, it takes one vote of one House Democrat uh, to side with the Republicans, and then the governor doesn't have the power to veto that when the bill comes to his desk. Of course, Michael, these maneuvers are happening in our legislature and in legislatures around the country because mm-hmm. of the Moore v. Harper uh, or the Dobbs, it was the Dobbs decision, <coughs> Dobbs excuse decision. me, the Dobbs decision yes. uh, at the Supreme Court, which over essentially uh, re- returned control of abortion rights to the states and Republican states have been removing those rights and sh- making things uh, stricter. Uh, we've seen the impact of that on Sunday in a front page story in the New York Times, they reported that no state embodies the nation's post-Roe upheaval like North Carolina. Uh, the Times reports in the eight months since the Dobbs decision, we have experienced a 37% jump in abortions in our state. Many of those abortions are coming from people who are coming here from out of state to get them. Uh, that is taxing, they say, health clinics, bringing more revenue to the state and energizing people on both sides of this conflict. So the legislature, as Colin just said, is talking about tightening restrictions here. The governor has said he will veto any bill that would take away uh, 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 abortion Reproductive rights. Reproductive health care. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, but it would only take one Democrat to cross the aisle to change that scenario. So is that likely to happen in North Carolina for a Democrat to say, I'm siding with the Republicans on this? I I think that there are some Democrats who probably come from more rural counties who are perhaps more moderate in their ideology. Um, You know, I I think we've seen the, the early salvos and hints of some committee chairs being led by Democrats Uh, Some of the escort committee for the governor to the state of the state address were Democrats that the speaker has been courting. So there may be one Democrat, maybe two, that see the the, you know, not the the complete restriction of abortion policy, but perhaps more controls, more decreasing that time period, as Colin noted, that they could sign off on. And if that's the case, there's that one vote to override, as Governor Cooper said, you know, leave the decisions about reproductive health care to women and their doctors. Well, I think Republicans want to have a say in that. But is that good politics? The Republicans surely see what happened nationwide in the midterms, some of which was the result of the Dobbs decision and women saying, no, we (laughs) don't take away our rights. So is it good politics to continue to advocate for this? And would it be better politics if they really truly want to advocate for this to wait until there's a Republican governor who will sign the bill as opposed to getting into a fight on the floor and try to override a veto in full view. 
Well, if you've got the numbers now, why not push it? And, and, and I think that that, you know, with the supermajority in the state Senate and the one vote missing in the state house, they see an opportunity with folks that they have courted uh, Democrats that the Republicans have courted to, to perhaps push this and put it onto the agenda. Yes, nationally, and yes, here in North Carolina, abortion was number two behind economic issues. And that certainly drove a lot of dynamics in other states. But remember, North Carolina had a very different outcome in the midterm election and garnered these kinds of supermajority numbers in the legislature to basically give the Republicans pretty much free reign to pursue policies that they want to if they can court that one crucial last vote. But Colin, in his rebuttal to the governor's state of the state address, the lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson, uh, accused the Democrats of, of wanting to take people's rights away. And this is a right that women, by and large, want to keep. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the interesting rhetoric from him was that, uh, you know, he was sort of using language that you might more often hear on the Democratic side of, hey, the other party wants to take your rights away. And he didn't really give any examples in his speech that I recall, uh, but it was certainly an interesting uh, linguistic choice to, to, to use that line. Um, and, and I think what he was largely referring to was, was less reproductive rights and more about, uh, he had a lot of uh, talk about education curriculum and the rights of parents to determine what's taught in schools. So I think that was well, kind of what he was referring to there. Well, there's an, there's an editor, a, a cartoon, an editorial cartoon in The Observer this morning that has uh, four panels and uh, t two of them deal with the uh, reproductive rights and, and uh, the rights of what can be taught in schools, etc. With him in the last panel saying, but the Democrats want to take away your rights. It, it seems like he's trying to talk out of both sides of his mouth. But Michael, is that just politics? Sure. I mean, that, that, that is politics. Welcome, welcome to, you know, 2023 in North Carolina and the United States. Yeah. Uh, another area that the governor spoke about and one in which Republicans and Democrats seem to be moving in opposite directions is gun control. The North Carolina House recently voted to toss out a requirement that handgun buyers first obtain a permit from county sheriffs. In Florida, we have Governor DeSantis down there advocating for no permits at all for, for, for guns to be carried. Has the governor, has he been specific at any time? Was he specific in the speech about what gun control measures he would like to see? Colin. You know, I don't think he outlined any specific new measures that he'd like to see. I think some of that, again, like, as I mentioned, sort of the, the pragmatism of it, he recognizes that they're not going to go in the direction of stricter gun laws in the state anytime soon. Uh, the, the best win for Democrats is to be able to somehow block, uh, if they can all hold their uh, their members together, any proposals like the ones that you've seen on, on uh, pistol permits uh, to go the other direction, loosen things up more, because there's ultimately several different pieces of gun legislation that are going through. Uh, a couple examples, the doing away with the, the permitting system where you have to go to the sheriff's office uh, to get a gun permit and they run a background check. Uh, Republicans argue that's redundant because there are other uh, background checks in the system. There's also some legislation going around about uh, schools that host churches on Sundays, uh, whether uh, security folks at those church services on Sundays uh, can get around the ban on uh, guns on school property and, and carry weapons uh, just on Sundays. Uh, so we'll see a, a number of things going through this session uh, and really is a question of whether the governor can veto that. So I think that was sort of what he was referring to on uh, when, when he brought up gun control of, of trying to at least keep the status quo of what we've got on the books here in North Carolina. I think it could be argued that this gun control issue is 
part of the culture wars, as is what's being taught in school, as is the abortion issue, etc. And he warned specifically, Governor Cooper warned specifically, against the state being sucked into these culture wars. We saw what happened as a result of HB2, the bathroom bill, which he referenced. We have the lieutenant governor uh, who speaks about these issues all the time, and he speaks to, about them in a firebrand kind of way. Did the governor explain why he felt we should not be drawn into these cultural war issues? You know, he focused on what, what I think was his best argument to Republicans of, hey, don't you worry about uh, jobs and the economy. If we go this direction, we make national headlines uh, and definitely reference the, the ghost of HB2 and, and sort of the boycotts that we saw from different companies, uh, some places that, that pulled out of North Carolina as a result of uh, the, the bathroom bill being on the books and ultimately uh, got repealed. Uh, so I think he's cautioning Republicans against going down that path. Um, of yeah. course, I think the national landscape has changed a little bit uh, since HB2 a few years ago. Uh, now, most of the policies that are considered here in North Carolina are perhaps a little bit more moderate, even if they are conservative than what other states are doing. So uh, redder red states than us are drawing a lot of those headlines for, I think another state even introduced a bathroom bill just in the last week or so. So it's gonna be hard unless they go uh, as intensely as that in making those national headlines that we were making five or six years ago with HB2. The states of Florida and Texas appear to be uh, trying to one-up each other. They're, they're in the vanguard of all of this. Uh, the state of Florida uh, is stoking the flames in these culture wars, and that state's governor, Ron DeSantis, says the rest of the country should be like Florida. It sounds like the opening salvo, Michael, in his presidential campaign. Although we are supposed to be a fairly evenly split state, at least among voters. Republicans control the legislature, the state Supreme, Supreme Court, and most of our delegation to the United States Congress. So how close are we to being dragged into these culture wars and making our own contributions to it? I think North Carolina is definitely a microcosm of national dynamics and what we will see play out in other states. Uh, there may be calls to do the same thing. I think we are indeed a very divisive battleground kind of a state. Uh, we tend to be a little stuck towards slightly leaning towards the Republican in terms of electoral dynamics. But as you mentioned, legislature, two thirds of, of state government is basically controlled by Republicans. So they, they will see this as prime territory, uh, particularly leading into what by all accounts is going to be another competitive election cycle, 2024. We will have the presidential race at the top of the ticket but man, this governor's race is going to be probably the nation's leading gubernatorial contest uh, next year. And if it is true, and we've talked about this many times on this program, if it is true that the state's voters are fairly evenly split between Democrats mm -hmm. and Republicans or among Democrats, Republicans and independents who lean Democratic, and yet we have a Republican-controlled legislature and the majority of Republicans on the state Supreme Court. Is that all because of district drawing and gerrymandering? Or is it because voters get into the voting booth and say, no, this is actually what I want? It's, it's party loyalty. In uh, some of the research that I've done, you can predict from one election to the next 
the the turnout in a subsequent election based on how the state has voted counties precincts down to about 99 percent so we have also sorted ourselves uh, Democrats tend to be concentrated in urban areas, the surrounding suburban counties, the unions, the Gaston counties tend to be overwhelmingly Republican, rural areas are moving more and more Republican, those urban suburbs inside of Wake County, but outside of, of Raleigh, same thing in Mecklenburg, outside of Charlotte, but inside of Mecklenburg County. Those are your competitive battleground areas. And in most recent dynamics, those tend to lean more Republican than Democratic. So you combine all this, we've got a 5149 state, but you've got pockets of real disparity regionally within the state based on party loyalty. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about the governor's warning that we should not have any more tax cuts uh, and what that might mean going forward, if anything, and take a closer look at the lieutenant governor's rebuttal and more when our conversation about the state of the state continues. And Charlotte talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Dr. Michael Bitzer is with us from Catawba College, professor of politics and history there, and Colin Campbell is WUNC's Capitol Bureau Chief in Raleigh. Uh, we're hearing stories of what Governor Ron DeSantis is doing to education in Florida to spare it from so-called wokeism going so far as to replacing members of the board of a small liberal arts college, small L liberal arts college, with conservative, capital C conservative cronies uh, from his administration with a goal to change the tenor of the curriculum there. We're also seeing bills being introduced in Raleigh, uh, putting limits on what teachers in elementary schools can teach about LGBTQ topics, bills ending the teaching of critical race theory, which was never taught in the first place in the elementary or high school system. Uh, and there are fears that something akin to what is happening to Florida in higher education may be happening within the UNC system. Michael, you're wearing a Wake Forest uh, t uh, sweatshirt. You teach in the at Catawba College. Do you think we're facing that issue? Is, 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 is the tenor of the UNC system being purposefully changed? I think certainly since Republicans took over control of the legislature, the first time they had complete control in over 100 years in 2011, they have wanted to put their stamp on North Carolina. And they have certainly done that through tax policies and other policies but certainly the, the UNC system as a whole has been seen as uh, an opportunity to try and reshape the dynamics of higher education and policy in this state. And I think if you look at things like the uh, debate over the establishment of a school of civic life at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, and some of the board members' commentary about what the purpose of that particular new academic division would be. Uh, I, I think that this is indeed, again, to play off of previous comments, the battleground for these issues and these concerns will hit very much home here in North Carolina. 
What, are the what is the state, Colin, of these bills that would limit the teaching of LGBTQ issues or CRT within the legislature? Have they been passed by either chamber? Uh, I think the uh, LGBTQ, LGBTQ topics bill in elementary schools, which is known uh, by Republicans as the Parents' Bill of Rights, that's out of uh, one chamber and waiting in the other. Uh, there's also the uh, critical race theory bill that I think has been introduced and hadn't passed yet. But both of these bills uh, had movement last session and either got a veto threat from the governor that prevented them from going further or actually vetoed by the governor and just were never overridden. So I think you can pretty much uh, forecast where these bills are headed and that's to the governor's desk probably in the next few months. So it's just a matter of when. To be vetoed again? To be vetoed again. And then the question is, you know, does a House Democrat or two uh, vote with Republicans? And there's already, if you look at the vote counts on uh, particularly the, I think the Parents' Bill of Rights legislation had a few Democrats uh, vote for it on the first round and whether they will continue to support it on a veto override remains to be seen. Uh, but certainly there is a, a decent potential that uh, these pieces of legislation could get past a governor's veto and actually become law this year, which was uh, sort of a foregone conclusion that they were gonna get blocked in the last session with the political dynamics in the legislature. So in his State of the State address, Governor Cooper said, we don't need more tax cuts, particularly for corporations and high income earners. But right now we have a budget surplus in the state. Usually Republicans like to say, if you got a surplus, it means you brought in too much money and you ought to give it back. Uh, the Democrats usually say, hey, we got a surplus. Let's save it for a rainy day fund. Or, ooh, look, we have a project over here we can use it for. Uh, who is correct, Michael? If we have a surplus, does that mean we, we, we should lower taxes? I, I, I'll, I'll make the generic yes to all the above. Can I pick, you know, all of the above D answer? I think, you know, again, this goes back to political perspectives. And as you noted, there are distinct ideological uh, beliefs and philosophies that drive particularly fiscal policy. Republicans are wary of making long-term commitments that would potentially be at issue if the economy heads into, say, a recession in the next year, and that surplus dries up. They want to build up the rainy day fund. They want to make one-time investments, I think. But Democrats see this as an opportunity to do things like raise teacher pay. That's going to be a recurring funding mechanism that Republicans may not be necessarily always on board with. And I think that that dynamic in fiscal policy is very clearly evident by the two political parties having sorted themselves and having very clear policy directions. So we have this budget surplus, Colin. We have a case with major implications for the entire country, which is coming from North Carolina and is sitting right now before the Supreme Court with a decision probably coming in June about shaping uh, about who can control voting uh, districts. The governor has been able to tout achievements despite uh, little control in the House or Senate. Tens of thousands of people are about to get access to health care as they're added to Medicaid rolls after many years of debate. Our economy appears to be robust. Employment is at near peak, at least in the urban areas. So what is the state of the state? You know, I think it's pretty strong, but again, you know, everyone's sort of uh, looking over their shoulder at the predictions of a potential economic slowdown or recession. Uh, so I think that sort of uh, will guide some of the budgeting decisions that come out of the legislature of, you know, 
obviously there's there's agreement that state employees need payer increases there's an agreement that teachers need pay increases and it's a question of just how much you know the governor in his speech uh, mentioned he'd like to see double digit pay raises for teachers uh the state board of education i think recommended something similar and it's a question of whether the, the legislature agrees to do something on that magnitude which would be substantially more than the percentage of raises in recent years uh, but they may decide to be a little bit more austere than the Democrats want to be, uh, recognizing that you know the economy could have some level of slowdown. Uh, but as you mentioned, so far no signs of that uh, coming to North Carolina's economy just yet. Everything is uh, is definitely going gangbusters on the economic front in the last couple of years here. The, the state of the state, as well as the state of the union, could be delivered in one sentence. The state of the state, the state of the union is dot dot dot. End of sentence, end of paragraph, end of speech. But these speeches have become uh, what they are, which are uh, political commercials for what I've done and political cattle prods for what I want you in the legislature to do. Uh, the, the lieutenant governor uh, had the unenviable task of being the rebuttal, uh, and he recorded his speech, as most of these are, uh, before the governor made his. I don't know how much information he had about what was in the governor's speech, but did he, the lieutenant governor, describe his view of the state of the state? You know, I think he uh, had a sort of similar view of the overall, you know, positive nature of the state's economics. Uh, but in his speech, he was careful to credit that all to the Republican leadership in the legislature as opposed to the governor. Uh, Although so he, did, he, of, did, he did say one thing about the, I forgot what it was now, but he did say one thing where he, he brought the governor into it to congratulate him. Yeah, that was probably the nicest thing we've ever heard Mark Robinson say about Roy Cooper in the past few years ever, which uh, again reminds you that he was making a political speech and doing so from a pre-recorded teleprompter setting where I'm sure he had many aides who uh, uh, well, focus grouped well, his, his well, let's, various let's, remarks. Let's talk about this because most people around the state who don't live in Raleigh, uh, when they have heard uh, Lieutenant Governor speak, it's usually in a pulpit at a church where he sounds like a firecracker going off and he's spouting out views that are highly controversial and highly offensive to many many people out there this address who was this guy that's when i saw the speech i thought who is this guy he's the antithesis of what he has been is that because this is the opening salvo of his gubernatorial campaign and my first thought listening to that speech was he hired a very strong political consultant. We'll find out on his next campaign finance uh, forums who those folks are. Uh, but the first part of his speech was uh, very much felt like a campaign launch. You know, campaigns always launch with, here is my biography. Here is my story of my life. And he told Which that he did. essentially the first half of his speech about his upbringing in poverty, being laid off from multiple factory jobs during his career before he uh, made this uh, sudden jump into politics in the last few years. Uh, and that really felt campaign -y. And, and he's already hinted that he's hoping to run for governor and has not made that announcement yet. He didn't make that announcement Monday night, uh, but certainly seems to be laying the groundwork for it. And, and that's perhaps why you saw a very different tone of this speech than when he spoke at the CPAC conference, the National Conservative Conference that was headlined by former President Donald Trump just a few days earlier. And it yeah. almost seemed like a different person was speaking. I don't know what he said there, but in the past, he has uh, called homosexuality filth. Uh, he's pushed the idea that women should not be in leadership positions. They should stay home, essentially. But the Republican Party chose him to make this rebuttal speech, Michael. Uh, they could have chosen anybody to make that speech. They chose him. 
Is that a fair sign that they expect him or that they want him to be their nominee for governor? I think certainly giving somebody this platform as the loyal opposition's response to the governor uh, gives him the political credence and credibility that the party sees this person as an up-and-coming individual or somebody that we want to highlight. And certainly, I think the uniqueness of having a sitting lieutenant governor. Typically, mm -hmm. it is a legislator. It is either Senator Berger or Speaker Moore delivering the response. And, and to have this as a de facto campaign start and to really give the lieutenant governor an opportunity to hit statewide airwaves with this kind of speech that was very different from Saturday's CPAC speech uh, is, is a sign that maybe there's some coalescing potentially of accepting his candidacy to be the Republican nominee in 2024. But in that campaign, if he, if he in fact runs for governor, he will inevitably go off script. It won't all be mm -hmm. on the teleprompter written by a speechwriter. And so the real Mark Robinson, which I think is what we've been seeing all along, it will, will seep out. And there have been a lot of comments politically around the country about Republicans playing only to their base, which wins primaries, right. but not necessarily general elections. And in this state, since 1976, Democrats have been elected to the governor's office nine times, Republicans three times. And yet it appears here that Republicans want to put Mark Robinson forward as their 2024 candidate in a state with a lot of newcomers flooding in who have perhaps more mm -hmm. progressive values that is already fairly evenly split. Again, is that a good, sound, wise political judgment? I think we'll we'll find out moving forward with his announcement and how he handles this in terms of strategy. You know, he talked about in his response that we should drop the weapons of political war. But Saturday's CPAC speech basically likened public service to the storming of Omaha Beach in World War II. So we have the tale of two Mark Robinsons. The question in my mind for the Republican nomination battle, will somebody come in and highlight those differences and be more, I don't want to say establishment, maybe more moderate mainstream in terms of the rhetorical devices that they use? But then if Robinson does succeed and win the nomination, do Democrats have an arsenal? I mean, a complete you know, the cadre of past comments that they can run as negative advertising against the, the Republican nominee and have that as an advantage in a very evenly divided state. Republicans I think the control. challenge for Republicans here is that uh, even if uh, they would like someone other than Robinson to run, the polling within the Republican primary base is yep. resoundingly in Robinson's favor. So anybody yep. else who jumps in, and I'll note that former Congressman Mark Walker and State Treasurer Dale Falwell have both said they're considering a run, uh, would have a big uphill battle to face to get the Republican base on their side and not voting for Robinson when the primary comes around. Republicans control the levers of power in 22 states. Democrats only hold 17. Where Republicans are in control, they seem intent on 
putting an agenda in place that reflects the views of a minority of voters in the country. And many are folks focused on these cultural issues. Others, quite honestly, and I'm, you can't paint it with any other brush, tilt toward fascism like uh, Ron DeSantis, his proposals on how to deal with the media in Charlotte, right out of a fascist playbook. How concerned, Michael, should we be about this? I think the rise of authoritarianism within certain strains and becoming more and more prevalent in Republican Party politics, you know, the, the, the demand of having bloggers and others who write about DeSantis be registered uh, with the state government, you know, strikes of a severe form of authoritarianism. But this is playing itself within a party that is very much in tune and supportive of a lot of these ideas and approaches. And the one thing that I would note is, there is a generational dynamic at play that I've been seeing, and this is playing to older crowds, particularly older conservatives, but they are not the future of the country. And this is where I think the dynamic is really going to come to test uh, in the next several election cycles. How well does this continue to play in an evenly divided country, in an evenly divided state of North Carolina? And, and it seems that the way we elect people and the way we campaign and the primary system in general uh, rigs the election in those directions. Would that be accurate? Very quick. I think so. I, th I think the voters have distinct views and they express them in the primaries. Okay, well, the state of the state is good. I think we, we, we can leave ourselves with that impression. Stay tuned for what's to come. Dr. Michael Bitzer, uh, professor of politics and history at Catawba College with us today, and Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief for WUNC in Raleigh. Thank you both for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.